Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. It feels like one of the worst things you can call someone these days is a narcissist. And while none of us want to be narcissists, except maybe for actual narcissists, the truth is that narcissistic traits exist in all of us. And we can think of these traits the same way we would other traits like extroversion. They're like a slider that people have inside of them, from feeling very special and unique on the one hand, to having no particular sense of their own uniqueness on the other. And having some degree of narcissistic traits isn't just normal, it's actually psychologically healthy. The problems start when people go beyond normal levels and become addicted to, or dependent on, feeling special. In this episode, we're focusing on narcissism, including identifying the different forms it takes, dealing with narcissists, and figuring out, if there is such a thing, the right amount of feeling special. To help me do that, I'm joined today by Dr. Craig Malkin. Craig is a lecturer in psychology for Harvard Medical School, a licensed psychologist with several decades of clinical experience, and the author of Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists. Craig also has a great YouTube channel, so if you're watching this on YouTube right now, you'll probably really enjoy it. So, Craig, thanks for doing this today. How are you doing? I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so happy to be doing this with you. We talked a little bit before the recording started, and I think this one's going to be really great. And in the introduction, I mentioned that narcissism is a trait, and that having some degree of narcissistic traits can actually be psychologically healthy. And that sometimes takes people a little bit by surprise, and there are a lot of different terms in this whole area. We've got narcissistic traits and sort of generally using the word narcissism, and then we've got narcissistic personality disorder. And I'd like to just start by giving you an opportunity to kind of flesh this out in more detail. Absolutely. You, you gave a, a nice overview and intro, so thank you for that, because I think the easiest way to understand what narcissism is based on all the research is you want to start with the definition of narcissism as a pervasive universal trait, the drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique compared to the other 8 billion people on the planet. <laughs> and with 8 billion people, even if you're a star, even if you're out there a lot and people know you, our time on this planet isn't that long and not to get too depressing about it or sort of faint flickering <laughs> lights in the, in the, in the universe. So already being able to hold on to some sense that we matter a lot more is helpful. And it turns out that's supported by the research. The idea mm -hmm. that is at the core of the construct or the concept of narcissism really goes way, way, way back to something in the research we call self-enhancement or positive illusions. It was a, a revelation to a lot of people when this popular book came out by an author named Shelley Taylor, a psychologist, and she compiled all of this research. For the longest time, we had this belief that the key to mental health and happiness and being well-adjusted was having a, a realistic view of things. And she blew all of that out of the water because she took this vast amount of information from all these studies and she showed that happy, healthy people don't view themselves, the world, or the future in realistic ways at all. They have a slightly overly positive view. Mm. They have rose-colored glasses on self-world and future. And this is what she called positive illusions. And, it, and that is really the heart of what healthy narcissism is. It's not self-confidence. It is not self-esteem. People mm. like to believe that those are one and the same and they aren't they might be gifts of healthy narcissism but it really is a moderate self-enhancement slight feeling mm. slightly mm. more unique special or exceptional than average so what's the difference between those more healthy narcissistic traits the ones that you outlined viewing the world through rose-colored glasses maybe viewing yourself a little bit through rose-colored glasses as we all do in in perfectly normal ways and the more disordered forms of narcissism. And again, you gave this beautiful intro to that because it is it really, you, I, I can tell you've done your reading and your research because okay. the, the big difference is one of flexibility and rigidity. Hmm. If you think of feeling special as a kind of habit, you know, and maybe potentially self-soothing that we turn to from time to time, like nobody wants to think they don't matter in the grand scheme of things, even though that's kind of true. That's part of what healthy narcissism is. It's kind of playing with the illusion, but not getting hung up on it. Mm -hmm. So people who start to tip into extreme narcissism, it's like they are addicted 
to that experience at the expense of love, at the expense of connection, at the expense of all other considerations. It becomes the one way of feeling good, of feeling good about themselves, of maintaining any sense of self, and that's when it becomes a problem. So if you think of healthy narcissism as feeling a little special, moderate self-enhancement, extreme narcissism that starts to get into disorder is addictive self-enhancement. People who are so invested in feeling exceptional in whatever way they do, and there's lots of ways to do it that I'm sure we'll get into, that they demonstrate the core of pathological narcissism, which I call triple E, exploitation, Mm -hmm. entitlement, and empathy impairments. It doesn't matter what kind of narcissism, if it's disordered, it's characterized by triple E. Yeah, so to delve into those a little bit further, because I've looked at that framework, I think it's a great one. Exploitation is basically using other people. Entitlement is the idea that people should bend to the will of the narcissist. And then you articulate empathy impairments, which basically means that they're not motivated by empathy or they're so preoccupied with what's going on inside of them that they can't really demonstrate it toward other people. And one of the articulations inside of that that I really like is that you've emphasized in in some of your work that some people think that narcissists are incapable of empathy, but there is a fair amount of research that suggests that that's generally not really true. They're capable of it. They're just not motivated by it. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? It really comes from our understanding that's clear from research. There's research, neurological research, doing brain scans, looking at what's happening in the brain, that is. Yeah. And in psychopathy, it's clear that there's there's all kinds of problems going on in the brain. And, and people with psychopathy might actually be born with less of a capacity for empathy and some other biological substrate or biological mechanisms Mm -hmm. that non-psychopaths don't have. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to somebody who is narcissistic, we don't see evidence like that. And what we know about humans, human beings, is that in order for us to survive, we need people. We need Mm -hmm. to be connected. We need to be parts of groups. So in terms of our wiring and evolution, we need empathy. We need to be able Mm -hmm. to understand Mm -hmm. others. So most of us are born with that capacity, including people who are narcissistic. What happens is people who become extremely narcissistic, it becomes blocked. That we also know from the research doesn't mean zero empathy. So if somebody is even the most extremely narcissistic person, if they're motivated enough, if it actually is going to be helpful to them to be empathic, they can be empathic and they can be genuinely empathic. What's clear is if understanding another person's point of view and their feelings gets in the way of getting ahead, getting their needs met, feeling special, that's where the blocks really come out, where Mm -hmm. this person is so invested in having those, they're not just rose-colored glasses, it might be just, I don't know, we could say bright red, that they're blind (laughs) blind to the needs and feelings of other people. But that empathy can be activated in all but the most disordered narcissists by switching on the parts of the brain devoted to relationships, Mm, caring, mm. connection, communal considerations. There's some studies that show if simply using communal language, like saying we, are, and us, makes somebody who's narcissistic more capable of empathy, more focused on relationships. Mm. So that's some of the evidence that it's not so all or none. And for those of us who are helping somebody who wants to change, who's narcissistic, it's really about tapping back into that and removing those blocks. One of the things that came up for me when I was starting to do prep for this conversation is this kind of fuzzy border between somebody who has overblown narcissistic tendencies, maybe. Like, let's say somebody who's kind of grandiose, they're self-centered, they maybe they've got a little bit of empathy impairment going on, and frankly, they're just generally kind of a jerk versus somebody who has actual narcissism or full-blown MPD. And would you mind kind of explaining what the difference is here? If somebody is, I think what you're describing, we could call high-trait narcissism. Yeah, yeah. Right. So as long as, long as we're talking about narcissism, the drive to feel special, exceptional, unique, that's the heart of it, you can imagine a spectrum, mm-hmm. as you were alluding to earlier, from zero on one end to 10 on the other 
And at zero, this is somebody who fails to self-enhance. They have no sense of feeling special, exceptional. They probably are afraid to, that maybe we can get mm. into all of that. At 10, that's where people earn the diagnosis narcissistic personality disorder. Their narcissism is so disordered, rigid, inflexible that they demonstrate triple E. Short of that, if we're talking about high trait narcissism, you won't see so much of that. These are people who can be jerks. They can be arrogant, but they will also have moments where, wow, that person was, he or she was kind of nice to me just then. They can slide up and down, as you were saying. What makes a difference between somebody with disordered narcissism and the high trait narcissism is, first of all, with narcissistic personality disorder, it is pervasive. Mm -hmm. It does not come and go. It is a pervasive impairment in their ability to maintain relationships, work functioning, go about their business in the world without the narcissism getting in the way. That's a very simple way of thinking about it. With somebody with high trait narcissism, it may not seem that bad at times. What high trait narcissism looks like is, say something big happens in this person's life, mm -hmm. like they lose their job. And suddenly where they were arrogant at times before and just kind of a jerk, now they're absolutely intolerable, mm. absolutely awful. Actually, an interesting story about this. One of the developers of our understanding of narcissism was a guy named Heinz Kohut. And Heinz Kohut introduced us to the understanding of vulnerable narcissism. He didn't call it that then. And hopefully we get into that, but this is the not loud, obnoxious version, but one that feels more insecure or seems more insecure. He, he talked about that. He elaborated on the idea of healthy narcissism. And it's a good example of what happens with high trait narcissism. People liked him. They thought he was brilliant. They loved listening to him. A lot of people had wonderful relationships with him. And then he got terminally ill. Mm. And he became apparently a miserable jerk absolutely awful all the time and what happens there is cohort and this is for people with high trait narcissism they face a loss or something that shakes their sense of feeling special where their environment usually maintained it and they have to get entitled to kind of refuel acting as if the world should bend to our will kind of turns people and the world into a drug for us that we can take mm -hmm. whenever we want so it's a way of siphoning off that feeling of special without having to risk asking for it and being rejected. I'm just mm -hmm. owed this treatment. And this is what happened to Heinz Koha. There's a fascinating little footnote to the history of the development of, of mm -hmm. the ideas. No doubt he had a bit of a narcissistic character, and that's why he was so good at understanding it. That's really interesting. I didn't. I, I mean, I'm generally familiar with Kohut's work, but I I wasn't familiar with that particular story. And that really puts kind of an interesting spin on a lot of it there. And you mentioned a second ago this idea of, of more vulnerable or covert forms of narcissism. So we have kind of a stereotypical image in our head of what a narcissist looks like, right? But the truth is that narcissism is kind of sneaky and narcissists take a lot of different forms. Would you mind explaining some of those forms and breaking down what they look like in practice? Absolutely. Let's go through the whole range beginning again, just reviewing, think of narcissism as the drive to feel special, exceptional, unique. As soon as you hold on to that as an idea, then it becomes clear that there are lots of ways to do that. Yeah. And the one that everybody knows is the extroverted or grandiose or sometimes mm -hmm. called overt narcissist. They're loud, chest-thumping braggarts. Reality TV stars are a great illustration of this brand of narcissism and they feel special by virtue of their looks their money they're striving for over ranking compared to other obvious ranking that is obvious in the world you can see it it's very visible yeah that's the over and that is what i often refer to as the narcissist we all know and loathe that's <laughs> what most people think of as narcissism the second most commonly discussed these days and misunderstood is covert narcissism. Mm -hmm. And covert narcissism, unlike overt narcissism, these are people who are introverted. It correlates most highly with introversion. That's why I prefer to call it introverted narcissism, because what people hear the term covert and they think what it means is, oh, these are the people who are nice when they're out in public with you, if you're going on a date or they're nice at the office, and then they mistreat you at home. 
if anybody who can be nice and charismatic is likely an overt narcissist, and that's not what covert narcissism is. Covert narcissism is about feeling special, exceptional, unique by virtue of negative qualities often. So covert narcissists agree with statements like I'm more temperamentally sensitive than most people. And few people understand my problems. They feel special and unique because their pain is greater than other people's. They're uglier than other people. They've suffered more. They've been passed over more. They are a misunderstood genius. There's the grandiosity. So covert or vulnerable or introverted narcissism, and again, I prefer introverted, these are people who feel grandiose on the inside. They still have dreams. In fact, a recent study showed the difference between overt and covert narcissism. They both are grandiose. Overt narcissists believe they have succeeded in all their grandiose ideas. They are winners, and covert narcissists feel failed. So their grandiosity remains on the inside, but outwardly, they're insecure, they're shy, they're socially anxious, they're often withdrawn. So that is the difference between overt and covert narcissism. And we can go into the third, but I want to give a pause so you can jump in. Totally. One of the the phrases that Rick uses sometimes is negative grandiosity, the idea that somebody is unique in their own badness. And I think that it's great that you're you're highlighting that as a really important way that this drive to feel special or entitled or unique or however we want to frame it can show up for people. Because when we have a word like covert, there's an association where somebody's trying to hide or disguise themselves, like you were saying. And there can be an element of that maybe, like a shrinking away because I'm just such a flawed person that no one would possibly want to interact with me. Exactly. But that's not the primary presentation of it. It's more about that inner feeling of, of worthlessness. That's exactly right. Yeah. The one thing that the public discussion gets right about covert narcissism is it's harder to spot yeah. Not because the people who are covertly narcissistic or introverted narcissists are hiding it in any mm-hmm. active way, but because they're so shy and often quiet and shut down, you don't get much information. And in fact, mm-hmm. one in early study on dating, a speed dating study mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. had people ranked, are you familiar with this, where they had people ranked who were extroverted narcissists and introverted narcissists? No, I don't think I've heard of this one. This sounds really cool. Yeah. It's probably about 10 or 15 years old now, maybe 10 years daters who were paired with somebody who ranked high in extroverted narcissism were like, oh yeah, this person is totally narcissistic. The daters who matched with an introverted narcissist, they really couldn't tell much. Yeah, There just wasn't enough information. Yeah. How much of that do you think is about our our public understanding of narcissism, like just because we have this image, right, that exists out in the culture of what a narcissist looks like. And like you were saying, it is the grandiose narcissist. It's the the reality TV show star, the politician, the CEO of the company, whatever. And we don't really have as much of like a popular conception of introverted narcissism. It's maybe becoming more well-known, but it's just not really out there in the in the space, when people are aware of it, do you think that they become better at recognizing it? Or do you think it's inherently hard to see? I think if people are aware of it, you and I are going to talk, I think, about some tells. Yeah, for sure. For narcissism, particularly extreme narcissism, regardless of type. And if people are aware of the kind of patterns that show up, I think it would be easier to spot early on. This is one of the things I help people with. Yeah. There are things that you can see in those early interactions, even with someone who's quiet and shy and withdrawn, just patterns of thought that come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned a third form that narcissism takes. It's referred to as communal narcissism. I actually first bumped into it, I think, from watching your videos and through your work. So I would love to talk about it a little bit here because I think that it's a form that narcissism takes that is probably particularly prone to showing up in self-help and personal growthy communities like the ones that I run in. Uh, So we should probably spend some time on it. So again, you have to have a little of a sense of being able to stand out from people in some way, having something special enough to say that, say, we can go on YouTube or we can do podcasts or we can put ourselves in a position where we're trying to help people. Right. So it's bound to show up in helping mm-hmm. communities. Communal narcissism is people who feel special or exceptional and unique by virtue of their capacity to help, to be altruistic, mm-hmm. to be caring, to be giving, to be connected to the community, to be benevolent. It really is defined by one item that I often 
trot out when I'm talking to people and they want to know what communal narcissism is. Communal narcissists agree with the statement, I'm the most helpful person I know. Mm. Now, this is that distinction between healthy and unhealthy again. Some of that is obviously going to fuel people who are giving on a large scale, people who are philanthropic, people who want to rally community causes and be at the head of them. Where it becomes a problem in somebody is obviously disordered in their communal narcissism is if it's all that matters to them. And we see this happen. All right. This is on the small scale. This is the friend who's always involved in some kind of cause for giving. And this is the friend who, if you say, you know what, I'm sort of thinking about giving to some other charities this year, or can I hear more about this? They act like you're the most selfish person on the planet for not rallying mm-hmm. to their particular cause. Or mm-hmm. even more common, if you don't seek them out and you sought some other friend out when you were having trouble, they're going to be upset. They're going to feel irritated. Yeah. They're going to feel spurned by you. And so that is extreme communal narcissism. Because, of course, that shouldn't matter if you care about someone. So what if they went to somebody else for support? This distinction, I think, is really important. And I would love your help with unpacking it a little bit. To be really clear here, having some aspect of these beliefs or maybe aspiring to be the most helpful person you know or the most caring person in your community or the most positive influence on other people, whatever, can be a perfectly healthy like aspiration. You know, these are not bad things to want for ourselves or for the world. And I think it's probably pretty normal for people to have an aspect of themselves that wants to receive praise when we do something good, right? We really did good to do a good deed out in the world. And there's part of us that's like, well, you know, it's not about receiving the positive feedback, but I wouldn't hate to receive some while we're at it. You know, that seems perfectly okay to me as well. Yeah, Yeah. but there's this differentiation, right, between all of that and it being the primary thing that somebody's trying to get out of it. Yeah. When at the center of someone's character, is it's the drive to feel special, and that's what organizes every part of them and how they relate and who they are, that's when it's disordered. If we've got a touch of it and we rely on it sometimes to kind of get things done or, you know, relate to people, you know, that's normal. Yeah, and we've spent time on the podcast in the past referring to a variety of profoundly exploitative gurus and cult leaders and personal growth personalities that are out there in the world who are difficult to talk about because there might be an aspect of something that they're teaching or something that they're doing that really does have an element of truth or support or that has really helped people or whatever it might be. But you see, once you delve certainly a foot below the surface, if not a mile below the surface, that underneath that is all of this bad behavior that's manifesting itself. And often the roots of that bad behavior are this sense of entitlement, invulnerability, exploitation, all of the things you named earlier. You touched on something so important too when we were talking about the distinction between healthy and unhealthy narcissistic traits. And I'd like to say a little bit more actually about the, the measures too, because they're such a clear illustration of what those healthier traits are. But what we know, both from working with people who are narcissistic and also measuring the trait and seeing how it operates internally, is that healthy and unhealthy narcissism don't rise in perfect step with one another. But they're moderately correlated. They're somewhat related. But somebody can be super high in healthy narcissism and have no unhealthy narcissism. And Mm -hmm. someone can be super high in extreme or unhealthy narcissism and have no healthy narcissism. But what very often happens is you get this combination. So this is where you see these grand characters who have wonderful ideas, inspirational, precisely why they can become gurus or, or rally people to their cause or, or create a whole movement in psychology like Kohut did, right? So they have all those wonderful qualities. And alongside that, they also have these exploitative, entitled, mm-hmm. empathy-impaired behaviors. Yeah, But they are not one and the same. And we know this for a fact because you can also look at just the history of politics and, and leaders like presidents psychologist Ron DeLuga and another psychologist, Scott Lillenfeld, applied the measure of traits for narcissism to presidents and politicians. Mm. 
what they found is most presidents of the United States rank high enough in narcissism to be called <laughs> narcissists. Sure. Yeah. This is one of the empirical demonstrations, which is not a surprise. Yeah, totally. If you feel special enough to lead an entire country, you might have a dose of that. <laughs> what we hope is they have none of the unhealthy qualities. Sometimes yeah. that's true. Sometimes that's not. Yeah. One of the lines that I heard to badly paraphrase it is something along the lines of wanting to hold political office should be a disqualification from holding it. Because <laughs> you, you have to be a little crazy to want to be the president on a certain level, I suppose, but certainly not on, uh, on my list of, of preferred, preferred jobs. And one of the things that you've done here in giving all of this information, Craig, is you've already given us some of the stuff to look out for, right? You've done a lot of identification. You've named different traits, different ways that this can show up. And then underlying all of those different presentations is that triple E framework that you named early on. And then the overriding drive to, like we keep on saying, feel special or unique. But particularly on the milder end of the spectrum, so we're not talking full-blown pathological malignant narcissism, but some of the ways that it can show up in people that certainly can cause a lot of harm to personal relationships, might make the person a, a complex romantic partner, or just kind of a moment when you're in the office with somebody else and you go, huh, maybe I should sort of watch out for this person in a certain yeah. kind of way. Yeah. What are some of the early red flags that you teach people to watch out for? One thing to bear in mind when we're trying to think about these flags is what drives unhealthy narcissism. Mm, mm-hmm. The heart of it is that narcissists are insecurely attached. Yeah. I want to explain that because not everybody who's an insecure attachment is common, unfortunately. And narcissism, when it's used as a coping strategy, either consciously or unconsciously, is just one way to cope with attachment insecurity. But that's what leads the way to our being able to, to spot problems early on. Say when you are at that first date, and that somebody is of the covert or quiet or introverted narcissistic variety, or somebody who's communal and they come in and they, you know, you're, you're blown away by all the wonderful things that they've done for the community. And it may not be apparent that there's some darkness stirring under the surface. One of the easiest ways to tell is to look for the flavor of narcissistic coping with attachment and security that comes out in these kinds of situations. Mm. One of the most common is what I call playing emotional hot potato. Well, let me back up. So yeah. attachment insecurity is briefly a discomfort truly depending on other people, putting mm. ourselves in their hands. It's an inability to engage in what attachment researcher John Bowlby called effective dependency. So if I'm sad, scared, lonely, blue, I can turn to one special person or persons and trust that they'll be there for me, push comes to shove. That's attachment security. People who are extremely narcissistic are insecurely attached. And what that means is they don't trust themselves in other people's hands. They don't trust that kind of mutual vulnerability in mm. connection. So they look for ways consciously and unconsciously to bypass it. Playing emotional hot potato is one of those ways. So playing emotional hot potato is if you meet this person early on mm -hmm. for a date, you're talking about different experiences on the job. And you're saying to them, I have this coworker, they're so hard to get along with, but I, I think I'm planning on doing this. And the person you're dating said, nah, you know, I, I wouldn't go that way. I think you're going to run into trouble with that. Let me tell you what I think about it. And they immediately sort of shift to all the ways why that's going to go wrong for you. Mm -hmm. This is a situation where somebody is propping up their sense of feeling special by portraying themselves as having the knowledge, knowing how to do things, and diminishing your sense of your own knowledge or wisdom. That might have been a more obvious way I described it. I could probably come up with subtler ones. But the idea here is that somebody who's narcissistic doesn't want to experience those feelings of I'm not sure what to do. If the person doesn't say, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I would do either. That's a mutual moment of vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. if, instead, if instead they shift immediately to sort of this knowing perspective, not a great sign. 
if they can't show any of that because it then that's about bypassing any feeling of vulnerability by saying i don't want to feel like i don't know what i'm doing here here you take it saying and doing things mm-hmm. to make you feel like you're the one who doesn't know what's going on that's playing emotional hot potato a more extreme example i had a client who was dating a guy and she was applying to graduate school and he would look over her shoulder and say are you sure that place is the best fit I mean, I can think of places that play more to your strength. I'm just concerned that you wouldn't be happy in a place like that, right? It sounds caring. It sounds like he's trying to help in some way, but he didn't know what he was doing for his life. He was completely lost. He never talked to her about it. Mm. This made me sit up and take notice a moment like this because I'm like, ah, you know, she was already feeling all kinds of self-doubt now. I'm like, this Mm -hmm. is one of those moments where he's passing off that feeling to her and he's the one who knows the right way through this. Just kind of speaking from the perspective of somebody who might be listening to this right now, I can think of plenty of moments in my life that I'm looking back on and going, well, I didn't really think that this person was operating in a way that made a lot of sense for whatever reason, and I had some questions about it or some concerns about what they were doing, and like, oh, maybe I, I didn't love how they were answering the question on the test or whatever it was. What sort of differentiates that from the more problematic forms that you're describing here? Is it just the level of empathy and consideration and willingness to to drop into my own not knowing or, or insecurity yes. and so on? Okay, all right. So if it feels like a suit of armor. Yes, it's gotcha. the mutuality. It's the struggle. It's like, oh my gosh, that sounds like such a hard situation yeah. with that guy. Yeah. I'm sorry you've been going through that. Gotcha. I love what you said about this. I just had some other concerns about how it might invite reactions that you don't want to face. Mm, mm-hmm. I love how you were thinking about, you know, t- talking to the boss first or right, something like that, where you're at least uh, acknowledging there's no right or wrong here. Mm-hmm. It's an uncomfortable situation. I get that. And giving some credence to the fact that the person has some wisdom and understanding of their own, yeah. even if it's a little bit. So, yeah. It's bringing the empathy. If what matters most is me showing that I've got a good idea, Mm. you kind of lost sight of the fact that this person is in pain. Totally. And something that, again, is just popping up for me as we're having this conversation is that there are a lot of people from cultural or social backgrounds that involve a lot of power dynamicking, particularly between men and women. I'm thinking of a friend of mine in particular who came from a background that was a what I would describe as like a pretty traditional conservative background in terms of, you know, men are generally positioned as the knowers, all of that. And he had some tendencies for a period of time to really kind of forward and center his own view, particularly when interacting with women in, in this sort of way that you're describing. But I would not describe him as somebody with particular super high narcissistic tendencies. He was just kind of raised in this tradition. And over time, this actually sort of broke down and it was revealed that he was a very empathic guy and he did some personal development work and it all smoothed out and was good to go. And again, I'm wondering, like, are there good ways for people to determine the difference between those sorts of styles of communication versus somebody who actually has like a narcissism issue? Such another great example, because remember, the difference is flexibility. The difference has to do with rigidity. Yeah. So your friend who softened mm-hmm. his stance over time. What I love about that example is it's a specific area of narcissism that's taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. Right. That there was an investment. Men have a special knowing and authority yeah. that women don't. And it was folded into his upbringing and his cultural his cultural understanding Mm. and it was part of his connecting to a larger group. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't simply for him. So he took it on in part because it was a way of being with all the other people, being close to people who had shared similar beliefs. This happens all the time. Yeah. Great clarification. Yeah. But if he had capacity for empathy and a woman said to him, you know, I really like you. And I'm so enjoy spending time with you. And that's why it's so hard when you talk to me in this way. Like, I Mm -hmm. don't have ideas of my own. I feel like you are looking down on me and really don't think much of me. And you're someone I think a lot of. And it's really hard to have Mm -hmm. somebody I think so much of seem to think so little of me. 
Mm-hmm. My guess is that might have softened him in the moment. For sure, absolutely, yeah, no, totally. And I th- and I love how you're you're kind of flipping my example because I said I think actually slightly incorrectly with the benefit of hindsight, like this was not done for narcissistic reasons. It actually was. He was it just taught was. them. Yeah, he was just taught them. The the culture yeah. was a narcissistic culture in a way, yes. where there was an establishment of hierarchy between different people and how certain people's views should be valued more than others. And that is inherently a narcissistic viewpoint. So there's a difference between maybe being raised in that tradition versus having those traits and that you're kind of describing here, or it's certainly going all the way over to pathological narcissism. So I just think that that's like a really good, really helpful clarification, actually. One of the things that I want to spend a little bit of time talking about here is working with people who struggle with these different issues, because of course you do that as a clinician. And narcissism is sometimes referred to as a treatment-resistant condition, in that a lot of people think that narcissists are somewhere between very, very, very difficult to improve and actually can't be improved at all. And I'm wondering what your view on this is. Well, they can be improved. Yeah. And I say that and know that because I work with people with narcissistic personality disorder. I've helped people repair relationships who have narcissistic personality disorder, help awesome. people reunite with estranged partners. It takes a lot of work. You've got to roll up your sleeves emotionally as a clinician, someone who's helping them, and they have to as well. But it is possible for some. And I want to put a caveat out there because for survivors, people who have been hurt by somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder, people who have been abused even, and not all people with narcissistic personality disorder abuse Many do, not all do. Many people who are abusive don't have narcissistic personality disorder. But enough do that there are people who are abuse survivors who've encountered someone like this in their life. And they're very understandably attuned to some kind of implication that there was something that could have been done. It turned into the kind of implication of self-blame, that there was hope there and I didn't do something right. That's what he's saying and that's not what I'm saying. It is particularly in the case of abuse, it is 100% on the shoulders of the abuser to change. Mm. No one Mm -hmm. else. We can relate to people who are abusive and have character or personality disorders in healthier ways for us and help people do that too, but it's up to them. Mm. And the key to helping anybody with narcissistic personality disorder begin to change is to teach them to relate in securely attached ways. Mm. It really is that simple. The idea of the approach is simple. The work is hard. How do you do that? But that is what helps people with narcissistic personality disorder to change. To the extent that you're depending on feeling special addictively, you cannot depend on people. If you're truly Mm. depending on people, you're in touch with real needs, real feelings, bringing them to relationships, hearing from others and being able to connect in them. That's what attachment security is. And we know extremely narcissistic people aren't securely attached for lots of reasons, and they will tell us. So if you ask somebody who's extremely narcissistic, would they prefer a loving, caring partner or a trophy wife or husband? They will pick trophy wife or husband. They will say Mm. that. This is about the definition of being insecurely attached, right? They're looking for somebody who props up their sense of feeling special, not somebody who helps them feel close and connected. So when I'm helping somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, even high in traits, I'm trying to create opportunities for them to have embodied emotion with me Mm. and even in imagined interactions between them and others and them and maybe even their younger self embodied emotion in connection and i will give a clear example of that yeah, please when i first start working with somebody who comes to me and there's a selection bias here right this is where the treatment resistant problem comes in if somebody is grandiosely extroverted narcissist enough that their world is working fine and supporting them and that they got tons of fans and followers, maybe they're a celebrity and it's perfectly intact, they're probably not going to show up on my doorstep. Yeah, There's lots of ways that can happen. And if that's all they want, they're not going to show up. They have to at least feel like there's a problem. So the people who come to me have some capacity to say, I think something's wrong. 
even if it's just, I keep blowing out relationships. Yeah. But it can be more extreme. I've had people call me up and say, I feel like a monster. I feel like I've been a monster all mm. my life. Wow. And I've had people come to me that way. So, but they have to say something. Mm. And then they come in and I start with them along the lines of, so tell me what are the patterns that happen and concern you? Like when, when does yeah. it go wrong? Mm-hmm. They might tell me a story. It's like, oh, it sounds like you had with your wife, she was feeling like you were talking down to her. You're being condescending. Is that right? Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. So you've mm-hmm. got a part of you that gets condescending. I start to introduce parts language, right? You've mm-hmm. got a part of you that gets condescending. Yeah, I really do. And I can really tear into people. I can I can rip them to shreds. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not doing that with me right now. No, I'm not. Okay, so it's a part of you, not all of you. Mm-hmm. That's right. I'm, what I'm doing there is I'm trying to alienate them from the behavior that we want to change. Like the, it's not the core of you. This is an adaptation, a survival strategy. It's changeable. And I often will say something like that. And then I ask them to do something simple. When can you first remember experiencing an interaction where either you were feeling like looking down on someone or they were looking down on you viscerally? Mm-hmm. When can you first viscerally call that? Inevitably, it's something like, my dad used to say to me, talk to someone who cares. Mm. Oh my gosh. Like what, how old were you? Then I get an age Mm. and not to draw it out. I'll be brief, but I want to vividly portray that. In fact, these are called portrayals in, in the research. Where were you? Where was he? Were you in the kitchen standing, sitting? I want, let's make it as vivid as possible. And then I will ask them, how do you feel towards that? little six-year-old you Mm. who was crying and upset and dad said talk to someone who cares Mm. now i'm i'm starting to evoke empathy i'm starting to evoke attachment security repeat that a thousand times and you have change yeah 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 well that was a fantastic outline of your working progress process by the way craig i found that totally interesting and we also have a good number of clinicians that listen to the podcast and sometimes we get questions about modalities so how would you describe the modalities that you use in therapy with people if you don't mind just really quickly here i heard at least a little like there was a little allusion to ifs there for a second in terms of identifying parts I also heard some maybe some CBT sounding things somewhere in there in terms of intervening around different thoughts or beliefs. How would you describe that? Sure. Sure. I've had a lot of training in different modalities, not surprisingly. So I integrate whatever is going to be helpful in the moment. Mm -hmm. But my primary approach as a baby clinician that I grew (laughs) up, I grew up with what's called relational psychoanalytic thinking which is best captured by one of my favorite quotes by an author named Christopher Bolas. Character is the trace of relationship. Mm. I love that. It captures so much. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Who we are is shaped around what we were permitted to experience and be in relationship. That's what forms Mm. our character. That can be changed. And part of that is opening up new ways of relating. So, Relational analytic is instead of Freud's idea, it's un, it, we believe in an unconscious, but instead of Freud's idea that we're made up of sex and aggression, relational, <laughs> re, relational analytic thinkers believe the core, we are made up of people. Yeah. As part of being in the human race, we're motivated to figure out how do I stay connected to even the most unhealthy person in my family, mm. and maybe it's my mother or my father. So that might mean I need to leave out parts of myself and feelings states of mind that drew me further away from them or grew criticism. And then those become buried in the unconscious. This is relational analytic thinking. And I do it experientially. That's what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. IFS is experiential. Mm -hmm. What that means is that you're not so much doing a lot of talk, talk, talk. You're trying to help the person have an experience, particularly embodied. And the approach that I use is something called accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy by mm-hmm. Diana Fosher, ADP. But I also have had training in EFT, another experiential yeah. mode, and yes, a touch of IFS, EMDR, anything to create an experience of change. That was super interesting and really appreciate the breakdown there. 
One of the things that you mentioned for just a second is essentially staying in relationship with people that we find difficult to stay in relationship with. I think that the example that you gave was staying in relationship with a mother or father where there's some content that's built up over time. And you see this inside of family structures sometimes with a narcissistically involved parent or a narcissistic child or whatever it might be, where you have a real heart connection on yeah. at least some level or another with this individual. You want to stay in relationship with them. But as you were saying, it's the responsibility of the person with the problem to go and do something about it. At the same time, we want to improve our own experience when we are forced to be around that individual, whether they're a boss or a parent or a kid or a partner, whatever, to whatever extent possible. So what are some of the things that you help coach people with that can maybe allow them to stay in relationship in a, in a happier, healthier kind of way, whether it's things to do or not do with this person or just different ways of thinking about it? There's a consistent theme throughout all of this in, in our conversation of attachment security, because it won't surprise you to hear me say I try to help people speak in a way that helps them with their own difficulties with attachment mm. security and to overcome their own barriers and their own blocks, because that is the best way to invite somebody into a healthier interaction if they're capable. And it also dovetails with some research on what kind of helps people who are narcissistic come out of a more narcissistic mode of operation, which is called communal activation. That's the area mm, of research. Mm -hmm. I mentioned it earlier, but it's basically using communal language like we are and us lighting up the parts of the brain of somebody who's extremely narcissistic that might be blocked or muted that are devoted to attachment considerations, needing each other, mattering, being valued just because I care about you and you matter to me. Those are all attachment considerations. And those are the things that get blocked. What I usually recommend, and another caveat, this is not for people in abusive relationships. Yeah, I like to assess whether or not there's abuse. And then really, again, it's on the abuser to change. It's on those of us being abused to seek help and support, either protecting ourselves in the relationship and or leaving it. That's it. But if you're not being abused, you can try what I call empathy prompts that are drawn from this communal research and also understanding of attachment. And an empathy prompt contains two parts. The first part is a statement of vulnerable feeling, sad, scared, lonely, blue. These are, these are attachment feelings, feelings of insecurity or fear, as opposed to the way we usually protect ourselves when we're in a vulnerable state is either we withdraw, we shut down, we pull away, or we get angry and attack. Even mm -hmm. those of us who aren't narcissistic will do that because anger is a great way to protect ourselves. But neither of those actually offer a chance of repair in an interaction with someone when we're feeling disconnected or disappointed. In an empathy prompt, you go to the vulnerable feeling and you highlight the importance of the relationship. This is what draws on communal activation. Right. So I gave an example of it earlier without naming it, mom, you matter so much to me. You're one of the most important people in my life, which is why it's so devastating when I hear criticism from you. I feel like a person I hold in such high esteem holds me in none. I feel like nothing mm. in the eyes of my mother. That's an empathy prompt. If somebody's capable of experiencing empathy for someone like that they melt when they hear a statement like that precisely because it reminds them of what narcissists need to know which is that it's not about their performance how smart they are what a brilliant amazing parent they are it's about how special we are to each other that mm. in other words it's replacing special for mm. like special for the world special for work special for my friends, special for with special to, which is mm. an attachment consideration. And the nice thing about empathy prompts is there is a possibility that you won't be received. If somebody, even if somebody yeah. isn't abusive, if they totally. are so defended, they might get angry. Mm -hmm. They might shut down, they might attack. The mother might say, why are you always criticizing me? Mm. I can't do anything right, right, a projection. Right. This is where they're the ones who are criticizing and now they're accusing you of criticizing. You might get something like that, but stay with empathy prompts because they're good for you. Mm. I mean, you're going to be mm -hmm. vulnerable in a negative interaction anyway, but what the empathy prompts do is they put you in touch with your deeper needs and feelings. And if the other person can't receive it, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the relationship. It's 
extremely painful for us when we have to face that. But our practice of being able to know really what it is that's missing, what it is that's affecting us, and be in touch with that helps us change and heal, regardless of what the other person does. Just for my own curiosity here, you're probably more familiar with this than I am, but in behaviorism, there's this thing that's sometimes known as an extinction burst, which is when a behavior is being forced to change in some way or begins to change. And in response to the attempts to change that behavior, there's this burst of even worse behavior, essentially. Like an example of this is a dog learns that it pushes a button to get a steak. You take the steak away from the dog. The dog starts pushing the button over and over again. They start barking at you. Maybe they try to bite you because they don't get their steak when you push the button, whatever it is. So that's an extinction burst. And I'm wondering, when you're doing uh, either work in general with somebody with narcissistic tendencies or particularly if somebody finds themselves in interaction with, say, a relationship partner, and they start doing this sort of empathy prompting or empathy pulling or trying to access those more vulnerable layers, do you sometimes see people almost exhibit a kind of extinction burst where their, their behavior becomes more defended or more intense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of figured. You know, extinction burst is a great way to describe it. We can also think of it in terms of protective or survival strategy, defenses. What you're doing in that moment is you're inviting that person to be vulnerable, to feel feelings that they're not comfortable feeling, to share feelings that they're not comfortable sharing. And that's going to create anxiety. And whenever somebody's anxiety goes up, their defenses go up. Particularly if you're opening up a kind of interaction, as I often do with people, I get I will get reactions like that. Mm-hmm. And if you're opening up an experience like that with somebody, you're going to raise anxiety and it's going to kick in those old defenses. In clinicians, us, for us as clinicians, that's an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Where I can say something like, oh, what just happened there? Yeah. What was that? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not going to get into the content at all. Like your whole face changed. Mm. What are you feeling in your body? I want to locate the anxiety so that they can say like they're buzzing or whatever. And often people can. If they're coming to do this work, they can at least identify that something happened physically. When I'm helping people who have to interact with someone like that, I'm not going to teach someone to be a therapist. (laughs) Yeah, I give them the perspective is they may or may not be able to receive it. In fact, even if it's working, they may not receive it at the time, but it's Mm -hmm. good for you. Mm -hmm. And even if you decide to end this relationship, it's still good for you. Yeah. Even if you get the wrong response, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really important reminder at the end there. Just because you get the wrong response doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. So for couples or partnerships that I'm sure that you've worked with, where there was a partner who had some narcissistic tendencies, but there was also a a feeling of mobility. They weren't totally entrenched inside of those tendencies. They weren't being abusive, but you know, they had an issue here. What do you think really differentiated the couples that got better from those that didn't? They have a capacity to repair. Mm. Inevitably, I have this saying that we can't get close enough to touch without stepping on each other's toes. Mm. That can happen intentionally, can happen unintentionally, but it's bound to happen doesn't matter that you stepped on someone's toes. I mean, it matters because it hurts, but that's not the issue. The issue is what comes next. It's always what comes next. You say, oh, that must have hurt. I'm so sorry. Or do you just act like, oh, what, what are you doing? You're dancing wrong. Like, why are you, why are you so close, right? It's, it's what matters is what happens next. And a repair is an important part of attachment security. Yeah. Being able to acknowledge pain. Nothing is more powerful and healing to a partner than seeing their partner's pain register in their eyes, like more than any words. Mm -hmm. So if I can help people Mm -hmm. do that, it's not about words. I give an example of the repair that actually helps in these relationships in rethinking narcissism with my own kids where we have these moments where you just completely fuck up, right? Where I'm outside working on a fountain and the kids have been messing around and they're three years old and they've stuck stones in it and now it's dead. I mean, that destroyed it actually, but I was out there trying to fix it and I'm getting angrier and angrier. Yeah, for sure. Then my girls come home 
And they come out onto the deck where I'm trying to fix it. And I'm so wrapped up in it. I don't even say hello. That was an awful moment for me, actually. Like, Mm. I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, this fountain is so unimportant. Mm. And I kind of came to my senses and I went inside and I did a, a redo with them. Where mm. I, I said, like, well, I screwed that up, but it's not too late. I went inside and said, girls, I didn't say hello. Hi, Anya. Hi, Devin. How are you? <laughs> I made a big show of it. And yeah. Now, they're not going to remember, I mean, especially at that age, in the way dad screwed up or like the hurt that that caused. What matters is what I did next. And mm. at an adult level, when you're in a relationship with someone, for you to be able to share from a vulnerable way, that I teach in empathy prompts and have it received, that's the possibility of repair. Well, I, I love that. And we also, I, I love that you mentioned that because we talk about that on the podcast all the time, where nobody's perfect, everybody makes mistakes, everybody screws up in relationship. The most important thing is can you repair with your partner? And if somebody's not willing to repair a lack of repair in the relationship in general, that's a major league red flag where it's just very, very difficult to get to a place where you're going to feel fulfilled and seen inside of that relationship because you can't have that moment at the end where you get back to empathic relating. And Craig, it was awesome to do this with you today. I feel like we could do a whole other one on on all other forms and presentations and functions here, but I think that this was a fantastic overview of this topic, and I just really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you again for having me. I've really enjoyed it too. I really enjoyed today's conversation with Craig Malkin, where we talked about narcissism. We covered a variety of topics, including the difference between narcissistic traits and more problematic or even pathological forms of narcissism, the different ways that narcissism can show up in people. And also Craig outlined some of the ways that he works with people who are dealing with their own problematic narcissistic tendencies. We started by talking about what narcissistic traits are, and this sometimes takes people by surprise, but the truth is that most of us have narcissistic traits of one kind or another, and it's actually healthy for people to have some degree of narcissistic traits. As Craig said during the beginning of the conversation, it's actually healthy for us to view ourselves and the world around us through rose-colored glasses, at least to an extent. The problems emerge when people become addicted to or depending on their unique feelings of specialness, and then fall into this framework that Craig refers to as triple E. And the three E's are exploitation, entitlement, and empathy impairments. Narcissists use others for their own ends. They believe that other people should bend to their will, that's entitlement. And then they have empathy impairments. They're not motivated by empathy or they're so preoccupied with and attached to and dependent on the constant fulfillment of their own needs that they can't really demonstrate it very effectively toward other people. And it's helpful to think of narcissism as a distribution. You've got people on the one hand who have no sense of their own specialness and that has its own problems. And then you've got people on the other hand who are on the total far end of malignant narcissism. They are intractable in their narcissistic beliefs and behaviors, and these people are very, very, very hard to treat. And there are important differences between people who are overly entitled or are too puffed up on themselves or whatever else, and people who have full-on narcissistic personality disorder. NPD is a pervasive pattern of behavior that is present all over somebody's life. If somebody is just really into their appearance or something, they have maybe one particular area of their life where these tendencies show up, that doesn't mean that they have narcissistic personality disorder. It has to be pervasive. And generally speaking, it's really helpful to keep in mind that NPD is normally thought of as a defense mechanism against a deep reservoir of shame and feelings of worthlessness that a person has. This means that full-on narcissism is essentially overcompensation. They're so insecurely attached. They're so uncertain that they can be loved just for who they are. They don't know if other people will actually show up for them inside of a relationship. They aren't sure that there is anything truly stable inside of themselves. 
And because of this, they have to constantly fill themselves up with reassurance. And if those sources of reassurance disappear for even a moment, they can fall into some really problematic behaviors. We then talked for a while about the different forms that narcissism takes. People are generally familiar with what are known as overt or grandiose narcissists. This is the conventional Patrick Bateman version of a narcissist, right? They present as having high self-esteem and a sense of personal superiority. They're overconfident. They're willing to exploit other people for their own gain. And they're very hostile and aggressive when they're challenged by other people. Then there's this other form of narcissism known as covert narcissism that we spent a little bit of time talking about. And this is generally more associated with introversion, and it often occurs when people feel that they are unique or special in the bad things that have happened to them. They are extremely woe-is-me. They think that nobody could ever understand their own suffering. Maybe they feel like they are truly special and unique, but they have been really stymied in their ability to give that specialness and uniqueness to the world. There are a lot of different forms that this one can take, but it's often a bit more challenging to recognize, particularly right off the bat in something like a dating environment. We have a really strong cultural conception of what grandiose narcissism looks like, but we don't really have one as much for covert narcissism, and that's why education around it is so important. Then there's this third form of narcissism that, if I had to bet, I would say has probably been on the rise since the social media era began, and it's known as communal narcissism. And these are individuals that promote themselves through a supposed commitment to communal goals. They regard themselves as especially nurturing and understanding and empathic, and they make it very clear to other people often that your concerns and problems are really shallow, while mine are deeply meaningful. I am supporting all of these important causes while you are just wrapped up in your own problems. And they might strongly agree to statements like, I am the most helpful person I know, I am a very positive influence on others, I'll make the world a much better place, I am uniquely trustworthy. And to be clear here, because this can get a little confusing, having some aspect of these beliefs, or at least aspiring to some of them, might be good or useful or even accurate. I mean, in any given room, somebody is actually going to be the most caring person in that room, and it can be okay to acknowledge that if it's really true. And we also, alongside that, might have aspects of ourselves that want to receive praise when we do something good. But for the communal narcissist, this personal aggrandizement is the primary motivation. They are involved with the cause so people compliment them, not because they actually deeply care about what's going on. Another way to put it, maybe, is that they're mostly concerned with appearing a certain kind of way rather than actually being that way. And we've talked pretty often about the problems that can emerge inside of personal growth or mental health communities around these various exploitative gurus who show up every once in a while. And what you see over and over again is this difficulty where, sure, there might be some element of this person's teaching that is really actually valuable and, and people do really get a lot out of it. But at the same time, if you drill just a little bit beneath the surface, you see all of these problems and particularly that triple E framework that Craig laid out. Craig then talked about some of the early warning signs that people can look for if they're concerned that somebody they're interacting with might have some of these problematic narcissistic tendencies. And one that he named in particular is this idea of emotional hot potato where narcissists in general are extremely insecurely attached and they're very uncomfortable with emotional vulnerability. They're also really uncomfortable with appearing like they don't know. So you might see examples of somebody who is constantly correcting you or who always believes that only they know the right way to do things. And when you talk about the way that you figured out to do something, well, they always poke 10,000 holes in it. But maybe more so than any one red flag. What to look for here is an overall pattern a unwillingness to be emotionally vulnerable, a desire to control and influence other people, a persistent need for soothing and emotional validation from others, 
And alongside that, really a general discomfort when they aren't the center of attention. And this can also be true for covert narcissists because what gets centered is their own problems, their own badness, their own whatever. We then spend some time at the end talking about how Craig works with people who have narcissistic tendencies. And maybe alongside that, ways where in your own life, if you feel like you're dealing with somebody who has these tendencies, you could move into forms of interacting that might support them and becoming a little bit different over time. Now, it's really important to name here that there are lots of abusive relationships that include somebody who has narcissistic tendencies, but not all relationships with somebody who has narcissistic tendencies include abuse. And we focus during this conversation mostly on relationships where there is not abuse happening. Craig really focused on the relational aspects of an interaction. Because narcissists are inherently insecurely attached, doing things to pull them into a more secure form of relating can help fight some of those narcissistic tendencies. And Craig did a lot of modeling during the conversation that I found just mega interesting when he was doing it about how we can talk in interaction with a narcissist in order to slowly pull them into a more relational framework where things become more centered on empathy and appreciation and mutual growth and understanding as opposed to constantly armoring against our own anxieties. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you were interested in these topics, you'll probably love Craig's YouTube. I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube right now, you can find it really quickly just by searching for his name. I bumped into it when I was doing some research on narcissism for a different episode, and I just thought it was fantastic stuff. Craig is also the author of Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists. It is a great book. I've included a link to that as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, we'd appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review if you can do that, and hey, tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for the cost of just a cup of coffee or two a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.